Hey, it's Quinnaverly here, and I just wanted to quickly say that we have another book signing coming up. So we're going to be at the Indigo in Ajax, Ontario, on the 24th of September, from 2 p.m. to 5 p.m. I'll, of course, be selling copies of my book, Arope the White Snake and Pekari the Azure Fish. Stay tuned to the end of the episode for more information about them. And if you just want to stop by and say hi to Noelle and me and talk about Lord of the Rings, you can do that, too. <laughs> See you then! Hello and welcome to Rivenpod, the only Lord of the Rings podcast that's really annoyed about beards. <laughs> we'll get to that later. I'm Guinevere Lee. And I am Noel Sayar. And of course, we're going to go deep into Season 1, Episode 2. Mm-hmm. No. Season 1, Episode 3 mm-hmm. of The Rings of Power! <laughs> or what was it? Los Anillos de Poder. Los anillos del poder. <laughs> I mean, let's just dive in, why don't we? Yeah. None of this preamble bullshit. Nobody came here for their personal lives. <laughs> they just want to hear about the rings. So yeah, we begin the episode again, leaving from where we left off with a Rondir getting captured by the orcs. Now we see him getting dragged through the tunnels and... Seeing all the human slaves and the orcs that have multiplied greatly. And, of course, he meets up with his elven compatriots who <laughs> who got captured off screen. I'm still annoyed about that, but whatever. <laughs> Overall, a great opening. Mm-hmm. I really loved the tone that they struck. Obviously, a Rondir is... I don't know, suffering from a concussion or something. Like, he's very, like, confused about what's going on. And you have, like, the sounds of the screams echoing in the caves. I got a very, like, Texas Chainsaw Massacre feeling (laughs) from it. (laughs) Like, the color tones and, like, the screams. And, you know, obviously there's a lot of... (laughs) Yeah. A lot of gore happening. So, I don't know. It felt very Texas Chainsaw Massacre to me. Uh, And it did remind me of the conversation that we had eons ago, (laughs) back in season zero, when we were talking about the the writers and the producers and the directors that we brought on, and how a lot of them had a horror background. Mm -hmm. It's true. And I'm really feeling that in this episode. (laughs) (laughs) And I hope that we get more of it. I really liked it. Yeah, like, I, I, in general, I like a lot uh, the... Like the, the aesthetic and the tone they have with the orcs, it is going on like a little different path from Peter Jackson's one. And I give the give it the, the orcs a little more personality and a little bit more of, I wouldn't say culture, but... Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, can we say more personality? I mean, Peter Jackson did show a little bit of that, especially in the Two Towers when you see the orcs squabbling with each other. Like, we can't say that Peter Jackson never included that in the movies. But it is nice for them to start off with that, whereas Peter Jackson's version started off with the Moria orcs, which were very skittish and animalistic and really didn't communicate with each other at all. It's like a feral, like a... Yeah, they seemed very feral. 
Whereas later we can see that they're they're not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they are sentient. They do have a language. Um, now they've actually kind of forgotten their own language, and by the third age, they they just yeah. speak English. <laughs> but yeah, so it is nice to see that. Uh, and of course, in the opening scene, it is the first time that they mention Adar. Mm-hmm. Adar, of course, as we said, the show is telling us it's Sauron, or specifically the elves are saying that it's Sauron, which immediately makes me think that it's probably not. <laughs> <laughs> and the name Adar doesn't actually appear... Of course, in the books, Sauron does take on the form of an elf in the Second Age, but the name that he goes by is Anatar, which means Lord of Gifts. Mm-hmm. I think it's probably safe to say it's not Sauron. Well, <laughs> I, 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 I don't think that... Oh, sorry, and I should say Adar, it, it is Sindarin, and it means father. It is what I mean. Like uh, obviously, that uh, the other name was intended to like trick the elves, because he like disguised himself as an envoy of like the um, an envoy of gifts. Yeah, I mean, like he basically gave like uh, the knowledge from the gods, kind of like uh, to the to the elves. So this don't mean that they don't have another secret personality. To, to the non-elves, yeah. because that personality was very much tailored from, from, from Trick the Elves. But one has to question, if Sauron can take any shape in this period of history, and he can, why would he appear to the orcs as an elf or a human? Surely, if he wanted to win over the orcs, he would either appear as his, like, dark, like, his yeah. evil self, full of power and terror... Or he would, like, well, he probably wouldn't debase himself, but or he would take the form of an orc, right? I don't understand why he would take that form to woo orcs. I can only understand why he would take that form to to make the elves feel comfortable. So that's another reason why it makes me think that it must be someone who was born an elf or born a human. I just have a hunch that it's not Sauron. I mean, one like a people, well, in internet point that who in the Southlands is like a famous for like have missed his father. Who? The, oh, I forgot the name. The, the boy that found the sword. Oh. Oh. <laughs> you mean Theon? What is this the Theon's father? That's right. I mean, literally, the only father that has been mentioned before was Theon's father. Um, Now we have a character named Father. father. And I do (laughs) feel like Theon's father is going to be a character. Like, I feel like otherwise... I I think pretty much the setup setup in that way to me. Yeah. I mean, obviously not Sauron. I don't think the Theon is the son of Sauron. No, 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 no. I think it's just like a general of the army. Like, as, as we mentioned, maybe a future, like a... Like, I like that like theory. Like a bride. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. I think this is Theon's dad. Yeah. <laughs> and that's why he left. Yeah. No, that's great. <laughs> and I think, you know, we're going to leave Sauron till later. I think, basically. Yeah. I, I mean, it's still impossible, but... To me, make a little bit more sense be uh, some kind of general 
that just Sauron itself. Yeah, and I I would like to see Sauron be revealed as one of the elves. I think yes, Made especially more sense to, me. to keep with the canon. I think that would just make the more sense. And I know maybe I should. Well, okay, you know what? Let's just skip to scene two. Yeah. Because I want to talk about Hallbrand. Uh, the next scene is Galadriel and Hallbrand waking up on the ship with uh, Elendil, Captain Elendil, taking them back to Numenor. Ah, uh, and I, I know I'm shooting myself in the foot here, but I have decided Hallbrand is definitely not Sauron. <gasps> 100% Gasp. not Sauron. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. And honestly, I, I had started backpedaling a little bit once I started seeing all of these articles agreeing with me. I think I mentioned it on the podcast, but it actually made me believe it less the more articles about this I read. <laughs> but here is the kicker for me. When Sauron came to the elves as Anatar... The only elves who were suspicious of him were Gilgalad and Galadriel. Specifically, Galadriel. (laughs) Not only was she very hesitant to trust this person, though she couldn't really figure out why. She just sensed that there was something wrong about this guy. But Sauron straight up feared her above all other elves. Now, the relationship that is forming between Halbrand and Galadriel, if the showmakers reveal that he is Sauron, I'll, I'm, I'll be done with this show. <laughs> because the idea that she wouldn't have that sense of hesitation, that like foreboding, it, like for some reason she can't trust Halbrand, but they're doing the opposite. She's very much like... Really, you know, in episode two, they have that moment where they're lost at sea and Hallbrand saves her and they clasp hands. And here again, he gets the knife back for her. They have that little, like, sizzling moment. Yeah, like a little filtering. She trusts him. So that, to me, it's... He can't be sour. No, he's yeah. not sour. So it, it was a fun little theory. We all had our fun with it, but it's over for me. <laughs> anyway... I'm jumping around a lot, I know. I want to talk about Galadriel's hair. (laughs) Uh, You know, a lot of people fetishize Galadriel's hair. And and part of the reason is because Tolkien put so much emphasis on her hair. To the point where, when it was rumored that Galadriel might have short hair... The entire internet burned because they just couldn't even conceive of the idea of her having sullied hair. That make a little bit sense in the, as you say, in the description of her. Yeah, and I do want to read the description of her from the Silmarillion. Uh, she was the most beautiful of all the house of Finway. Now, I'll, I'll give them that, Morpheth Clark. Yeah. Beautiful. Her hair was lit with gold, as though it had caught in a mesh the radiance of Laurelin. Uh, Laurelin is one of the two trees that give off the light. So the idea is that, you know, her hair, (laughs) it does have, like, 
not the literal light of Valinor, but it has that kind of essence it's, about it's it. It's so beautiful that remind the yeah. light of Valinor. And, of course, that's like a big... Th- that's, like, you know, a, a great B-plot in the Fellowship yeah. when Gimli asks for a strand of her hair. And, and she gave me three. And she gives her three. And that becomes, like, I don't know, he puts it in, like, a crystal casket and that becomes <laughs> one of the heirlooms of his house and blah, blah, blah. All right. So her hair in this show so far, <laughs> I you know they when they introduced Baby Galadriel in episode one, they literally introduced her by the hair. You saw her hair first, and it it had that light about it. And in this episode, you know, she wakes up and just has absolute bedhead. She looks like someone's just, like, dragged her around in in the mud, and rightfully so. She has just been in a shipwreck. But I couldn't help but just be like, I don't know, surely her elven magic would just kind of make (laughs) it appear beautiful no matter what state she's in. I know, I'm nitpicking stupid little things, but... I I mean, so far, her hair, the most important thing that he do is cover her ears. Oh my god. We'll get to that later. <laughs> but yeah, so she's way too short. Her hair is mousy at best. And she's just kind of angry all the time. I'm not... I don't hate it. But I also don't love it. It's just, I don't know, these little tiny things are just kind of... Building up on you? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I honestly didn't thought about the hair until now. I do nitpick about things, even if I don't want to. Um, some people get really crazy about these things on the internet. I don't know if I should, like, talk about this at the end of the episode or not, because it's not really related about episode three but just in general the things that people on the internet complain about because it's quote unquote not canon they tend to be things that you can't really confirm in the canon i.e skin tone (laughs) but it just enrages them at the very thought of it and then you have some things that are very concrete within the books and, you know, things like elves are tall (laughs) (laughs) or Galadriel's hair, you know, shines with the light of the trees of Valinor or that Numenorean lords do not have beards. <laughs> Which they don't, right? Elendil, Aragorn, Boromir, all of these people should not have beards. That's canon. Tolkien has confirmed that in multiple sources. And I don't hear people complaining about this shit. Instead, people complain about dwarven women not having beards, even though it's very debatable within the text. Yeah. So, that's just... I don't know. It's something I just couldn't help but mention. And now I've mentioned it. So let's move on. So next scene? Uh, Well, of course, the next scene is they arrive at Numenor. Which is, you know, definitely the highlight of the whole episode. Yes. I mean, like, it's like the the big reveal, obviously. Mm -hmm. 
I think they were quite cheeky too because obviously they showed some of those shots in the trailers. You know, you saw them sailing down that chasm with all the carved faces and the rocks. And we did see the bay within the city. And even for that shot, we're like, oh yeah, that's, that's big, that's cool. And then they, <laughs> they zoom out and we get a real wide shot of the whole city. And, um, I mean, it's huge. It's it's bigger yeah, it's, than it's, any it's, city that we've seen in the show so far. Yeah, or, really, really big. Or even in the Jackson adaptations. Uh, it's, yeah, so it was really cool to have that, like, reveal, even though we had seen most of the shots before, like, we didn't even realize how But we was. didn't see it, like, uh, in, in yeah. like the, the magnitude, like, the size of the city, like, before. Yeah. So, all of course, all the architecture of it, it's really... They took all the descriptions from descriptions of Gondor. You know, the, the mm -hmm. massive statue is very similar to Argona, the Argonath, which just means the Kingstone. So for all we know, this is also called the Argonath. Uh, my theory is that it's Elros. It's a, a big statue of Elros. But a second contender is it could be Eärendil. I I thought it would be Eärendil. But, um... Yeah, so here's the thing, because obviously Elros was the first king of Numenor, but Eärendil was his father, and he was considered a great hero. And of course, as we mentioned, Eärendil, he had one of the Cimmerils, and the Valar <laughs> sent him up in his flying ship to, uh, to fly the star around the sky, and that's... That's yeah. the evening star, or, or the morning star, however yeah. you want to call it. It's Venus. And when the elves decide to reward the Adain, the, the humans who supported them against Morgoth, and give them the island of Numenor, to summon them, they used the light of Eärendil's star. So they all followed the star to the west, and of course it became a very important symbol to them. And we do see everywhere... In the show, we saw the symbols of the the Cimmerils. And we do know that, like, you know, from the books, their symbol was Eärendil's star, the, yeah. the Cimmeril that he wore. So, yeah, it, it could be Eärendil. It could also be Elros. But either way, I think it's definitely one of those two guys. <laughs> yes. I mean, like, uh, obviously, there was the two fathers, let's say, for, like, the yeah. Numenor, the Numenorian culture itself. So, yeah, one of these both is going to be the like a narrator that yeah it is it is hard to know what is the the main one or they consider what is the um, the most important of both mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the other architectural design that's very similar to gondor is of course the palace which has this like massive plateau thrusting from it and that's taken right from minas tirith and I was looking for the description of it in, in The Return of the King, and I really liked it, and I, I just wanted to read that. This is as Gandalf and Pippin are riding into the city. A vast pier of rock, whose huge outthrust bulk divided in two all the circles of the city save the first. For partly in their primeval shaping of the hill, partly by the mighty craft and labor of old, there stood up from the rear of the wide court behind the gate a towering bastion of stone, its edge sharp as a ship keel facing east. Up it rose, 
even to the level of the topmost circle, and there was crowned by a battlement, so that those in the citadel might, like mariners in a mountainous ship, look from its peak, sheer down upon the gate seven hundred feet below. So it's meant to look like a ship. <laughs> Which of course Make totally sense a huge part of their culture. Yes. But literally when I read that, it was like oh it's it's a ship because they're ship people. Like <laughs> I don't know, like, you know, how many times have I read the Return of the King and it just never clicked in my head? But I I don't know, I really yeah. liked that detail <laughs> and I like how they kept it in the palace in um in Numenor, so mm -hmm. that was cool. Of course, all of this is the big introduction to Elendil. He's going to become a huge, huge yes. character. <laughs> we know, if anybody's been listening to the start, we've just kind of been very spoiler-heavy. I mean, if you don't want spoilers, maybe you just shouldn't shouldn't listen to this series at all. No, no like... I, I mean, it's, it's a little bit late to, like, uh, say Elendil. that this is not a spoiler-free podcast. Elendil is going to kill Sauron. There, I see. Yes. <laughs> now, well, of or, course... Or, 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 well, not kill, but the less defeating battle. And again, no one's complaining about this on the internet. He should be, beard he should be beardless, and he should be over two meters tall. But that's not important here. <laughs> uh, pretty much everything that they said about him within the series, uh, within the episode, was bang on. Yeah, much with his. He's one of the lords of the western part of um, uh, Numenor. Specifically, he comes from the city of Andunie, uh, city or province, I'm not sure mm. exactly. And the lords from the west were noted for their... Loyalty to the, uh, the, the, the elves. Yeah, the, the elves. They brought up a little bit about how once upon a time Numenor and the elves were very friendly with each other. And then suddenly uh, they started sending away elven ships. And from Galadriel's point of view, from the elves' point of view, they don't know what happened. <laughs> <laughs> And, of course, that's something that I'm... Because they were being kind of cagey about it, I'm guessing we're going to, like, slowly reveal yeah. it. But they, they essentially said that they, they don't trust the elves. And, of course, all of this is stemming from the fact that the Numenorians started to feel like they were entitled to immortality thanks to being descended from the elves. But then, you know, denied, you know, not only denied immortality, but denied sailing to the Undying Lands. Like, they're, yes. not, they're not allowed to the Holy Lands, so. Despite they will do it eventually. Yeah, this is from the Silmarillion. For though the Valar had rewarded the Dunedain with long life, I should say the Dunedain, just to be specific, they are the Numenorians who are descended from Elros. Because obviously it's not all of them. <laughs> I mean, it's gonna... <laughs> it's, I mean, it's probably a lot. But yes, the Dunedain are the men who do have elven blood in them. Anyway. They could not take from them the wariness of the world that comes at last, and they died. Even their kings of the seed of Eärendil, and the span of their lives was brief in the eyes of the Eldar. 
Thus it was that a shadow fell upon them, in which maybe the will of Morgoth was at work that still moved in the world, and the Numenorians began to murmur, at first in their hearts, and then in open words, against the doom of men, and most of all against the ban which forbade them to sail into the west. So basically it's just this unrest that slowly grows until even the kings decide to denounce the elves. Uh, eventually, Muriel's father comes along, Tar Palantir. He actually, he had a different name at the beginning of his reign, but then he changed it to the elven version, Tar Palantir. He tried to win the people back to the side of the elves, but failed. <laughs> and he died, kind of, he, in the books it makes sense, he died of sadness, I guess. <laughs> now in the series, of course, he's not dead. So I think we might see Tar Palantir show up later. They did talk about how he was exiled. And then the last shot of Muriel, she is talking to her father. Well, we I... don't see the father. He's off screen. But she says, father, the thing that we have feared has come to pass. The elf has arrived. Oh, I, I thought that she was talking... <laughs> like, like Metaphorically? A, with herself. I think she might be talking into the Palantir to him. Because when I talk, when I hear that the scene for like Isildur saying that his king was like a, I actually thought that he talked about his own bloodline, not actually the the father of me. No, because Elendil, he is descended from Elros. I think it was like the fourth king of Numenor, like. His, his, his branch. Yeah, yeah. His, there's a branch from him, mm -hmm. and that's where Ellendale comes from. So, he's got that royal blood in him. He's a lord. Well, yeah, of course. But... but no, he's not like a disgraced king or, or anything okay. like that. And of course, the king being alive might answer the question as to why Muriel is not... The... It's called the regent. Yeah, except... Just why... Like, why? Why? If if they've exiled the king and taken his throne, then clearly he's not the king anymore. So then wouldn't yeah. she be the king? Well, I mean, like, uh, sometimes they, they still need to address him as the name, but, like, uh, he's reigning his name. You know, uh, because until he's there, they still be the king. So, like, uh, the, the daughter is reigning because he's not there. For reasons. Yeah, but they said that they exiled him. So it sounded like it was a pretty firm, you can't have the crown anymore. And and if you're thinking to yourselves, well, surely she wouldn't be the queen because she's a woman. Well, in Numenorean law, the women <laughs> take the throne. So... It's just kind of confusing to well, me. Well, like to me, like it was Isildur who used the word exile. Obviously, if, if you ask something in the court, the king is having a retirement well, in the mountains. Yeah, we'll see more. Like he's sick we're, and the daughter yeah, maybe, is reigning for him. We're going to learn more about that, but it just feels a lot like a... I don't know. It's very strange to me, especially for a show that so far has seemed extremely well researched. I can't believe they would just miss something like that. So there has to be more that's going on. Yeah, I, I, I don't know what is the purpose, what, what they're winning, making this like a twist of the lore. 
I, I, I don't know what is like the, the, I don't know. the final goal, but... That's the thing. I We haven't seen exactly what's going on in Numenor yet. Like, you know, basically in this scene where Halbrand and Galadriel are brought before the Queen Regent, because she's not a queen, you know, she's arguing with all the senators about something. We don't know what's going on, but clearly there's some trouble brewing behind the scenes, so... I think I think in the next episode we'll get a better idea of what's happening here. Um, of course, the other important thing that we see is the Tree of Numenor. Yes, correct. That's going to play a much bigger role. I mean, even, you know, later on, Muriel's talking about it and she does... The petals of the tree falling are like the tears of the Eldar. <laughs> you know, so they clearly do have some understanding of the importance of the tree. Um, the tree itself is interesting. It's got quite a history to have ended up in Numenor, and then later on in Gondor, mm -hmm. of course. So this was another gift from the elves, and uh, this is just from the Silmarillion. And a seedling they brought of Celeborn, the white tree that grew in the midst of Eresea, and that was in its turn a seedling of Galathilion, the tree of Tuna, the image of Talperion that Yavanna gave to the Eldar in the Blessed Realm. And the tree grew and blossomed in the courts of the king in Armanellus Nimloth, it was named, and flowered in the evening, and the shadows of night, it filled with its fragrance. It's kind of interesting. It stays closed during the night, uh, during yeah. the day, and then opens in the evening. This tree is like the grandchild of <laughs> <laughs> Telperion, one of the trees of, of the Valar. So while it gives off no light, it is meant to still retain some of that beauty, much like Galadriel's hair, you could say. <laughs> some of the beauty. <laughs> now, I was maybe a little bit disappointed in the design, because considering the fact that it is meant to look like Telperion... You think it's going to be bigger? Well, I just thought it would look more like the tree itself. <laughs> Whereas, like, that tree was just, like, a straight-up... This one is, like, bent and, like, it's got a very interesting, like, bonsai shape about it, which I like, but, like, again, it's supposed to be the image of the Tree of Valar, so shouldn't it... I, it if I was designing these two trees, I would try to make them a little bit more similar than I think they did in the series, so... I, I don't know if they tried to mimic a little bit, like, the the tree that appeared in the... In the Peter Jackson adaptation, that there was like a little bend and like a curve a little. I mean, it could be that in some source, like one of Tolkien's letters, maybe he described Nimloth as being like similar to one such tree that has that kind of maybe. bent trunk. Maybe, because yeah, both Peter Jackson's version and this did have a similar look. You know, just in the source material, it being described as similar to Telperion, I just kind of expected them to look similar. That's all. That's all. It's just a little thing. But 
Why not? Why not make the two trees that are supposed to look similar look similar? Some of them would talk about the Numenor was um, heavily based in like uh, ancient cultures, especially Greek. And I was read that something found like some um, similarities with the legend of Atlantis. And uh, in fact, uh, well, like uh, many of the of like the Greek uh, tragedies used to have uh, some kind of uh, teachings on it. And uh, in the legend, they have kind of like the good faction and the evil factions. And, you know, like it is like the the war between these two factions that like led to the, the, like the, the ruin of uh, Atlantis. And uh, that also make a little bit of parallelism of uh, the two factions of Numenor, that is the elf friends, that is the, the, the people from Numenor that... Uh, want to become, keep, be friends with like the elves. Elendiri. And the king men's, that they are like the evil ones, that they try to like uh, break the relationship with the elves. And uh, in fact, was the king's men, the ones that uh, um, found like a Umbar, that eventually become in ruin and become like a, like a focus of evil. And uh, was the Elf Friends faction that like uh, found like uh, the city that eventually become Minas Tirith, that uh, eventually become like uh, the heir of like uh, all of the good part the Numenorians have, and eventually, still I I read that he he take a fruit of the tree. Yeah, I think that's probably going to be a scene that happens later, because obviously. That white tree is growing in Minas Tirith in Lord of the Rings. Yeah, it's not the same tree. <laughs> no. But, yeah, at one point, Isildur... Uh, well, basically, they're scared that uh, Farazhan is going to cut down the tree because Sauron is insisting that he does it. But even Farazhan's a little, like, hesitant because as... I think they do kind of say in, in this episode that... They say that the the day that the tree died, the last time, like the, the line of the kings is going <clears throat> yes, to die the with it. the kings. So it's kind of tied to the line of the kings. Um, and if Alpharathon could it off. Yeah, but he, <laughs> I'm getting there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they're talking about it. So Isildur hears about this and he goes and he steals one of the fruit before Farazhan mm-hmm. can cut it down. Um, but it's it's such a huge moment because it's so important. Well, I, I don't know if we're going to see it in this season, but it's it's going to be like a big moment for uh, Isildur. And especially how they're kind of showing him as being, you know, a young man who's really not sure about his future and clearly trying to prove himself to his father, like but not the way that his father wants. So I think it's going to be a moment where he's like, oh, this is how I can finally show who I am to my father by going and rescuing this fruit. So I think that's kind of where his arc is is heading. Yeah, I, I mean, like, technically this should not happen until the very end, but uh, maybe they just, like, uh, speed it up to kind of strength the relationship between the him and the father or try to like speed up the they build up the character. 
Well, I mean, it's not supposed to happen until after Sauron comes to the island, but as we've said on multiple occasions, the timeline just doesn't matter anymore. Especially, I I don't think they have time for both, because technically, like, uh, after the ruins was forged, should be a war with the elves, all of the Eriador should be like a completely like a destroyed. I think they're basically just gonna compound those yeah. two wars into one. And then, like a, a lot of years later, Numenor is gonna have like a, a military campaign in the Southlands, and it's when like a Saron is captured and bring to the Yeah, island. there's. But I am assuming this is gonna just like merge these two events well, into one. Mili- I think the capturing of Sauron's gonna ha- happen, like mid series. Because he does yeah. need to get on that island, and he does need to start corrupting Farazan and all of that stuff. I think as far as the Numenorians, the Numenorians helped defeat Sauron twice. Like, right, mm-hmm. right after the One Ring is created, there's a big war to fight against Sauron. Sauron just escapes to Mordor, and then later on they capture him. And then finally, later, later on, they have the Great Alliance. So I think the Great Alliance in that first war against Sauron is just going to get squished together in the narrative. Yeah, because in fact, like, the Forge of the Rings was much before Alfaran's song itself. But I think it is just like a collapse all at once. The, the thing is, I don't know how they're going to introduce the, the cult that we have sown. Because obviously this is going to be like a... Before Sauron, it's on the island. Yeah, I mean, I'm even surprised that they they didn't introduce so far. (laughs) At this point, well, I I mean, I really don't know what the show's angle is going to be, but at least in the books, the cult art, the Black Numenorians already existed. Yeah, from the beginning of the. And they essentially just existed as a faction that hated the elves. And then when Sauron shows up, he just adds fuel to the fire. So, I, I think they're going to come up, anyway. The thing, I don't know how they're going to portray, like, the... I mean, when, when like, Alpharazon was completely corrupted by, by Sauron, they basically take the ships and go to the Undying Lands. I don't know if that, how they're going to put that, if they're going to just have a battle in the Undying Land, or they kind of call it a bit off-screen... No, I think they're going to do it exactly how it happened yeah. in the book. They sail there, and as soon as they set foot, just destruction, mass destruction. Yeah. <laughs> Numenor is dragged under the seas, and the entire world is reshaped. Like, it's just going to be... A f- it's going to suddenly turn into a Roland Emmerich movie, basically. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in the next scene, we meet baby Isildur, who's essentially been turned into a Disney princess. Longing of a better life. Looking over the... I don't know. Looking out at the island and dreaming. He just fucking looked like a Disney princess as soon as I saw him. And we also got to meet his hot captain. Of course. Who I don't think will ever come back again, but... (laughs) No. Oh my god. When that guy showed up on screen, I was just like, Hold everything! I need to know more about this man! Since that this day from like a... Like the... Caribbean Pirates movies. <laughs> <laughs> he had a very piratey feel about him. Anyway, Hot Captain was great. Hope he comes back. We also got to meet a new character. 
Isildur's sister named Adian. And I say a new character because she's just solely invented for the TV show. I, I mean, like a... Yeah, I, I guess I understand where they're coming from. Like, other than Galadriel, I can't think of too many female characters that were named. You need to space up with a little bit more females yeah. in the show. You know, obviously Muriel, she's great. She's from the books. Uh, I don't, I don't know, I guess they just needed somebody in Allendale's side that was also a woman. I don't mind it, it doesn't like contra- for a second, I was a little terrified that they had transformed Anarion into a woman, Anarion being <laughs> Isildur's brother. But they do talk, they, well they briefly mentioned Anarion, he's, he's clearly the- the disappointment yes. of the fam- the black sheep of the family. It sounds like he's been sailing off to Middle Earth, and his father disapproves of that. They were. I I I, I always interpreted that he went to the colonies looking for yeah, that's, adventures that's and I'm a new saying, life. Yeah, but it was a little unclear. But anyway, obviously Isildur is interested in Middle Earth and. That's, you know, yeah, his, uh, don't worry, Isildur, your story is going to take you there eventually. <laughs> um, so yeah, you know, we didn't get to meet too much about Aeodian. But uh, in general, I don't think contradicts the canon because, like, I don't think all of the family tree, they are exhaustive. I mean, they talk about, like, uh, th- these two sons, but they don't mean that he didn't have another more. That's true, just because she's not named, although... <sighs> Let's be honest with ourselves. Tolkien was so meticulous. If he wanted Ellen Hill to have a daughter, he would have said it, right? Like, he wrote family trees down for everything, so I don't think he would have actually left it up to interpretation. But for the sake of argument, yeah, maybe. Maybe we, it's just a daughter we never made it into the annals of history. You know, whatever. Um... As long as it doesn't turn into her wielding Narsil and cutting off this hand of Sauron, then yes. uh, <laughs> I think I'm fine with this change. It I mean, if it is me. basically in the background to give a little color, I don't think. Yeah. And of course, speaking of Narsil, in the very next scene, we have Muriel and Elendil talking. And this is maybe the first hint we get that Muriel doesn't hate the elves as much as she's been making it seem because you know before she was all very very angry at Ellen Deal how dare you bring elves and now she's like here's a promotion <laughs> uh, but in return for the promotion you got to keep an eye on the elf so she's kind of making it seem like it's a punishment but I think quite clearly Muriel is happy. And again, going back to canon, her father was a huge supporter of the elves. We don't really get what her perspective is, but we can we can assume based off of Farazan's actions of usurping her that she probably was an ally of the elves as well. So I, mean, I think that's in keeping. It makes sense as a kind of antagonizing with Farazan that basically have the, the contrary point of view. Yeah, and of course, the the biggest moment, maybe the 
the biggest thing in the whole episode, I was literally jumping up and down on the couch, punching Noelle, because I was so excited. <laughs> but she hands him Narsal. She hands him a sword. The, now, the, well, we call Nolia sword. They didn't, they didn't name it Narsal, and... Yeah, I do believe in the books he gets it from a slightly different way. To do for a rock. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. Well, it it does. Wait, there is. I have the name of the person who made it. Telchar of Nogrond. You know that guy. Yeah, that guy. <laughs> and here's its description from the Cimmerillion. It shone with the light of the sun and of the moon. And it was named Narsil. <laughs> and of course it does, it is golden and it has uh, like white highlights. So it does kind of have that dichotomy. There is like, a, you know, stars or the the, Cimmeril, the symbol of the Cimmerils is, is carved into the um, scabbard. And on the pummel there's a circle which... We could say, hey, it's a ring, but also it's the sun, right? <laughs> I, in fact, I, I mean, I, I didn't be, but I thought that they have, when I saw it, I thought that I, that I see like lines from the center of the circle symbolizing. Like carved into it. Yeah. Yeah, I think it, it is just meant to be the Silmaril. Yeah, I think so. But anyway, um, hugely important. Of course, this sword. It continues all throughout the histories mm -hmm. uh, into the Lord of the Rings. Yeah, Aragorn carries around the shards of Narsil, and in the Return of the King, they're reforged for him. It's just a, a great little moment. It was it was really underplayed, I think, on purpose. But still, you know, they had like a lingering shot on the sword, and it was very clear that they knew that fans would be excited about it. But but they don't want to like. Real, like, you know, trumpets are blaring, the sword of Narsil, you know. Because, <laughs> of course, at that point in history, it's not an important sword, right? No. But, but yes, I mean, what else can be? Because he's, he's a lord. He will have plenty of swords. Exactly. Like, uh, that needs to be something especially well-crafted. Otherwise, like, it's not point to just... Yeah. It's like, okay, have another. Put in the pile with your other sword, you know? Anyway, it was just... It made me really happy. <laughs> uh, this episode, so far, has definitely been my favorite episode. But anyway. Uh, our next scene takes us back to the Southlands. And, of course, these are... Um, this is the tree scene. Which was another scene that I, I really liked, or at least I liked the conclusion of it. Uh, building up to it is the elves being sassy to the orcs, and, <laughs> and um, you know they they basically they they're refusing to cut down the tree, and then the orcs are just like, "Well argued, elves. Here, have some water." Mm. I literally had no idea where this fucking scene was going. Yeah, uh, to, to me. I, I didn't like that the scene. The payoff was not great. I mean, basically, like, <laughs> he hands them the water skein, and they're, like, you know, slowly drinking from I feel like the whole scene took, like, five minutes. <laughs> them like, sniffing the water, tasting the water. I put, look, I put water and in my hand. the water Jeez, out a water. little bit. Then the orcs, like, watching them drink the water, and they're passing the water around. It took so fucking long. And what is the grand payoff of this whole scene is that finally the third elf, 
uh, Arondir's buddy, when he lifts his head to drink, finally, the orc takes out his sword and slashes his throat. And it's just like, did you need to go through the whole rigmarole? Couldn't you have just done that to begin with? Yeah, it's like, okay, I got it that they tried to mock the elves before kill them. Yes. To humiliate them. But I don't know, seems just too much. And then, you know, nitpick corner. But he basically gives the elf a paper cut on their neck. And and he just instantly dies. Yeah, I, I, I thought that, like, it was... It should be much more blood. If I mean, so much more blood. I mean, if you could... Oh, I forgot the name of the artery. Jugular? A jugular. So, basically, if you could, the jugular... This is like a phone time. Yeah, and my first thought was like, oh, well, maybe they're trying to tone it down a little because it's a family show. But then later on, when we have the warg, holy fuck, it's (laughs) ripping people open. There was blood everywhere. Uh, No, no. So this was just like an odd choice. Yeah, I don't know. There should have been a fountain of blood or he shouldn't have died so quickly. Yeah, and all of the water thing. Anyway, that whole scene, it it was too long. And, yeah, then, um, of course, the, uh, the ranger's leader, just some elven translation, he's screaming at the orcs, he calls them Hunaharan, which, uh, essentially means, you damned animal. Um. I told you he was saying motherfucker. Yeah, he basically (laughs) said motherfucker in (laughs) Elvish. And then, of course, when, um. Uh, Arondir finally goes to cut down the tree and that's the part of the scene that I really do like where he puts his hand on it and he speaks to the tree and he says Anin Apsene which of course means forgive me and then he cuts it down and um, I thought the conclusion to the scene was great even though it just fucking took forever to get there and I know that he made that that like I think that oh I'm gonna quit the tree because he want to claim on the tree mm-hmm. and and like scout the yeah basically the surrounding. Like, I think in, in the very first scene when they find the elves they're they're saying like okay we need to get up and look for the tree line so that we can plan our escape so part of the reason why Arondir is finally like okay I'll go cut that in the tree is because he wants to go up and get that information but when he go and technically quit the tree. A little, I would say, like a half meter above, like the the ground level. Everything that's gonna help at all to like a clean clean the tree for make a, the trench. Well, they gotta cut it down first, and then they can rip its roots out. I guess I, 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 <laughs> there's be, a process. To be made more sense that they start to like cut like the, the, the like the, the tree, but I don't know. <laughs> I think it was a kind of like a loose effort, but I yes. think you're yeah. Say so you're overthinking this, but that's literally everything that I do. Yeah. Then we head back to Numenor, and we see Ninja Galadriel. Prince of Persia her way out of the palace. And then, yes, she has her amazing Clark Kent disguise moment. Oh, yeah. Where she finally realizes she can put her hair over her ears and no one can tell she's an elf because she's five feet tall. <laughs> that he thought, by the way, like way after he was on the street, so... Yeah, whatever. He, he didn't remember halfway. That whole scene's ridiculous. And yeah, Ellendale is like, yeah, we're we're friends to you people, we love you guys, or whatever, I don't know. And that's what he was saying, like, are you gonna, like, steal that skiff? 
Because we're like, you don't have idea how to sail. As we see in the episode two. By the way, <laughs> the way he spoke to her was so infuriatingly condescending. Because he's like, oh, you remind me of my children. You just need a strong hand to guide you. She's like 10,000 years old, buckaroo. But that's okay. He was acting as a child, so... Well, that's kind of, you know, the, when I said earlier, like, the way her... She's just, like, angry all the time. She doesn't act very elven. So far in this entire series, she doesn't act very elven. No. And there is an argument to be made that it would be very boring if she acted very elven the will, entire time, but... Will be another Gilgalad. <laughs> Anatomy of Gilgalad. But would it be so bad to have a stoic main character? Like, I feel like if she was a man, it wouldn't really be a problem to have yeah. this kind of, you know, think of like Clint Eastwood in a Western. Like, he doesn't say a lot. He just has this stare. They could have done that with her, but instead they just have her like flying off the handle and insulting people. And yeah, acting like a teenager to the point where Ellen Deal is just like... Slow down. Yeah. So, I don't know. I, I don't know what annoyed me more. The fact that they wrote him so condescending towards someone who is infinitely more wise and ancient than he could ever imagine. Or the fact that the writers are portraying her this way. I think it's a little bit the second. Yeah. Because he is really ancient, but I don't know the wise part. That so far, I didn't... Well, not, not in this show. I didn't get wisdom. But I mean, <laughs> you know, in the books at this point, she's a fucking queen. Like... Yeah. You know, literally, she's ruling Oregion. She's the one who's supposed to be in charge there. Not... <laughs> and not Columbre Not, not fun Columbrebore, but <laughs> whatever. It's not important. These things don't matter. Anyway, then Ellendale takes her for a fucking horse ride. Oh, oh, God. Which, I mean, by the way, didn't the queen say that she couldn't leave the palace? And now he's just like, here, let's, here's a horsey. I mean, I, I just want to assume that uh, behind the scenes in this secret assignment, they just like uh, tell him that, I don't know, that maybe he can just tell her or help her somehow. But you would literally think from this scene that Galadriel hadn't seen a horse in about 3,000 years. That, that face. She was oh, so fucking oh. excited to be on that horse. Just <laughs> best day ever. Forget Sauron. Wee! I'm on a horsey! <laughs> like, no, that, that, that the scenes should, should be born. That was just <laughs> like... That reminded me of like an episode of Baywatch where suddenly it just turns into a slow motion montage and we see women running <laughs> along the beach. Like, yes. It was just literally they wanted a moment where they had slow motion shots, they had like drone shots of landscapes. Mm. Like it was just to show off some pretty moments. It added nothing to the plot. And yes, it gave us Galadriel face. And I don't know if I can. Com if I can ever forgive them for that. <laughs> it, it is carved in my ratings. <laughs> that smile. Yeah. And then they end up at the Hall of Lore, which isn't something specifically from the books, but it it's, doesn't yeah. feel like it's breaking any canon no. to say that Elros created uh, a library. Uh, exactly. I, I, think I mean, it's perfectly logical to assume he would. And then we do get a little bit more exposition in the scene about... 
who Elros was and his relationship to Elrond, and then of course that's, the, the that, mark. That's fantastic, like a fresco. Yes, that fantastic fresco. <laughs> and then they have the the librarian yes. <laughs> who must have a photographic memory because they literally are just like show him a picture. And he comes back one minute later with the exact scroll that they needed. No, like, I, surely he would be in there for hours. In addition, he said, let's see what we can find. Yeah. So in that moment, you don't remember, and just the first scroll you open, like, oh, And he boom. finds, like, multiple scrolls about it, too. So he, like, crazy. And then he does the same thing with that symbol of the eagle, that the symbol of the king yeah. of Mordor that she shows him. Like, this guy... Clearly has a photographic fucking... I want to know more about this librarian. I'm very curious about him. I mean, taking care that the Numenorians have, like, a longer life, and he seems very old. He must be doing this for more than 100 years. He must be one of the Dunedain. That's yeah. all I can say about that. So what's a librarian for the last 150 years? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And there was not that many scrolls, so he read everything a lot of times. And of course, this is us discovering that Hallbrand is secret prince. We also learn that he has like secret super special fighting powers. Like yes. he's got like a berserker rage mode. Yeah, he also have anger uh, anger issues. I mean, I, I mean, it, it was a little unclear from the scene. The scene uh, after Hallbrand tries to steal a guild badge off of someone. Very stupidly. Yeah. Um, and then not even try to run away. No, he just like... Walking and, and, yeah, and tossing the coin the air. slowly into the alley, flipping the coin up in the air. So, of course, they corner him and kick the shit out of him. And then... Like, the way it was filmed... So he's like, please don't do this. And it seemed to me like, please don't do this. I don't want to kill you. But, but maybe <laughs> I don't have control. And really, when he stands up and he's, like, screaming, the look on his face is just, like, again, berserker mode. Like, he's just gone, like, completely into attack mode. Yeah, like, to me, they didn't feel... Yeah, so, like, was he... Feel, I didn't like that was scene. Was he conditioned to be a fighter? I, I don't know where they're going with it, but it felt like the born identity. <laughs> I, I mean, to, to me, I don't think that, that they go for that way. I think that they just try to show that, like, oh, I don't want to do it in the bad way. But as you say, how the portrayal, it is like he was, like, you no, know, out of his mind. So, I, I don't know. I, it feel, it didn't feel like, a, I didn't like that scene in general. Yeah, it, it felt, uh, who, who knows where they're going with it, but it, it did feel a little strange. I... Didn't write down the page number, so sorry I can't find the 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 source. But as I was reading through the Silmarillion, I did finally find a reference to kings of not specifically of the Southlands or Harad or anything, but just kings of the the men who are not Numenorians, <laughs> <laughs> the men who followed Morgoth. Basically, it says once Morgoth died. Or not died, but once Morgoth was defeated, and now all these men are sort of scattered to the south and the east, um, that kings did rise up at that point. But they were described as very evil. They were eventually destroyed. When, when the Numenorians come later and 
and teach them how to farm and how to become better people than all those like evil kings kind of disappear. I'm assuming that the the Numenorians destroyed them. So that's a direct contradiction to the show because they're saying that Halbrand's family they ruled during Morgoth's time because they made a blood oath to Morgoth. Actually, now I don't know. Did he necessarily say that that is that they were kings when they made the pledge to Morgoth? Maybe they only came to power after. Eh, whatever. Anyway, I was just happy I finally found a reference to that because yeah. up until that point, <laughs> I was like, "What fucking king?" Yeah. Then we head over to the Harfoots and see crazy fucking Harfoot pagan ritual, <laughs> which really started off like kind of creepy. The music was a little dark. Everything's kind of slow motion. And the first like a costume was an orc. Yeah, and it. <laughs> yeah, the they're like dressed up as a lot of like different things, and some of them had these headpieces that resembled that like long skulls that we see some of the orcs wearing uh, later. And then have a mask, kind of like a. Kind of like a pork nose, kind of like a... To me, it was, was, was an art costume. I mean, I, I don't see why they, they... I mean, it could just be a random monster, which, of course, orcs look like. But we're going to think... You know, these people, of course, they hide from the rest of the world. But as they're hiding, they do observe things. I mean, I mean it's not impossible so that... why not? They the, the could have seen, orc. Yeah. And then it just became like a monster that they yeah. fear. But yeah. yeah, like like the, the the music didn't feel with like a ha- happy festival. It kind of got happier as it continued, but at first yeah. I was like, "Oh my god, is this the Wicker Man? <laughs> like something terrible is going to happen." But yeah, I guess it's just a ceremony they do before every migration. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, it ends with them reading the names from the book. Uh, we find out a little bit more about the the families. I was kind of confused about. Nori's mom, because uh, Marigold, who is clearly with her father, she calls her Marigold earlier, and I was like, well, you wouldn't call your mom Marigold. (laughs) So who's your mom? Well, apparently her mom's name was Rose, and she died some time ago, maybe when Nori was born. And so Nori's sister, that is Largo and uh, Marigold's daughter. So so they're half-sisters. And then Proud Fellows, Poppy Proud Fellows, I, I, I misheard before. Uh, of course, we learned that whole, her entire family was taken out. And it's quite a long list. Yeah, it was like, six. Yeah, there were six people. So we're talking about maybe, maybe like two parents and, and some grandparents, but clearly some siblings yeah. as well. Uh, she is the only one left, which is just like so heartbreaking. If I I I, I go that there was all siblings, but the two parents because the parents say the full name, and like a something like a, uh, and then with the siblings there's like a, the yeah. the main names in succession. Ta, 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 ta. Yeah, and then uh, for Sadok, the leader of the Harfoots, uh, his last name is Burroughs, and one of the names that he reads out from the book yeah. is Daffodil Burroughs. So I was thinking it's either his wife or his daughter. Yeah. And then I noticed yeah. that they start very ominous. I mean, probably because they want to just, you know, like, um, get sad with a, with a puppy and get like a... But then they start to keep reading. And then they say, like, uh, the name and say, bees. And the people, ha, 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 ha. Well, but you 
know what it what it's like when you're out of wake and no, it gets to a point where it's just so sad that you 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 find yourself like laughing about something. You tell stupid stories about someone. I don't know. And it's just a way to break the tension. Like, no, nah, that, that that felt like well, very human. It felt very real. That idea, like to kind of bring bring yourself out of that depression to to laugh about it a little, you know? Yeah. Uh, it felt real. And then we get some stranger shenanigans. Stranger action. Now, when we're talking before about the whole fire is cold thing, and when they find him, the fire gives off no heat. And of course, you brought up the fact that no cold follows him. And I think this this scene just sort of emphasized that, because nobody's like suddenly getting chilled when he approaches. Yeah. And from the way that the stranger reacts to the fire catching that star map, it seems like it, there there is a little bit of heat coming off of it. I mean, uh, for a starter, if 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 the if the fire don't give heat, the paper will don't ignite. Well, uh, we can debate physics on another day, <laughs> but uh, safe to say, I think that the fire from the meteor was enchanted somewhat to, like, protect them. Yeah, magic them. stuff. So I think, as I said before, it was just a pure red herring. And I think this just kind of proves that... Yeah. Yeah, he doesn't have that, like, evil essence of cold following him around. <clears throat> um, and then the other... The other thing from that scene, they do call Nori a child. But halflings... They they mature a little bit slower than we do. Hmm. So, assuming that Nori is the same age as the actress, so in her mid-twenties, she would still be considered a child in Hobbit culture. Or at least a teenager. Well, yeah, basically a teenager. Yes. Like, the twenties, the like, so Pippin and Mary, for example, they are in their twenties, and they are considered, like, essentially yeah. teenage, like, you know... Maybe eighteen, nineteen, that kind of yeah. age, like college age child, you might say. Yeah, I, I always interpreted that child as a not literal child, but he's very young and he he don't yeah. know what she's doing. But just to clarify for people watching it, they don't mean she's like twelve. No, no, no. <laughs> she's but yes, she is young and immature, and even if she is like, 23 or whatever, to them, she has not re reached maturity. Exactly. So. Well, they go back to Numenor, and we just get the family drama scene between Elendil and his two kids, which it seemed yeah. pretty standard, you know. Father wants too much from his son and doesn't listen, and, you know, oh, that Anarion. You know, <laughs> don't be like your brother. Nothing I haven't seen before. No, I, I, the only thing that stuck out to me in that scene was the creepy puppet show, yeah. which, I mean, it's great because like puppet shows like that did exist in you know medieval times or whatever, but who the fuck made that Galadriel puppet so fast in a day? And like, did they see Galadriel or <laughs> and what was the, even the story all about? Like, some demon tries to kill Muriel, and then Galadriel saves her, but don't they fucking hate the elves? Like, why would they make Galadriel the hero? I have so many questions about this stupid puppet show! Yeah, no, especially, like, uh, that should be, like, the, like the, the best carver ever, because he was working all night to have, like, <laughs> that puppet ready for the next day. Uh, anyway, yeah. I mean, what I get for that scene was also, they they keep, like, uh, going a little bit 
like a vapor into like a big guild systems from the society. Yeah, I at first thought it was just like a throwaway thing for Hallbrand because he wants to become a blacksmith because he wants to stay on the island. Yeah. But they tell him you can't unless you get the guild badge. And then that leads him to try to steal it. I was like, yeah. okay, arc is finished. But then we have the daughter getting accepted into the Builder's Guild. And so now I'm realizing, like, okay, they're going to do yeah. a lot more with this guild. And, like, a, a, and also, like, a Isildur kind of, like, a being introduced and have that, that uh, like, um, training program to become a sailor. Yeah, he's trying to do the sea trial. That probably it is a kind of, like, a guild-like, a you become, need to become a professional sailor in order to become one. And yeah. I don't know, I, I, I kind of like this. I don't know if it is actually canon, probably not. I'm going to say no. I, I, did, I made a brief look. I didn't find no. anything particular about Guild. I think it's more based off of his historical, yeah. like, real L- medieval times like that they a, have Guild. Classic, and... yeah. But I, I like it. I, I think it was a, a nice touch. And yeah, we'll I, see where it goes. And they give you a little bit more deep, just like a... Like a like a pretty buildings and nothing else. I like that they try to construct a little bit of society. What I'm what I'm curious about is that she got into the builders guild, so I'm assuming they're they're gonna build her up as basically an architect, mm, and yep. that makes me excited to be like, when they get to Gondor. Is she gonna be the person who like designs Minas Tirith? <laughs> is she going to like make the Argonath? You know, <laughs> I, it, this is just my imagination getting away with me. But I think there's some fun things that they could do with that storyline if they if they follow through yeah. with it. All right, uh, we head back to the Southlands and, and we get to meet the as I was trying to come up with a name for it, and I think Wargina is maybe the best, because that fucking warg, that was a hyena... Yes. ...with pug eyes. <laughs> it had a, the cutest fucking eyes I've ever seen on a monster. What's a weird breathing in there? But it was such a hyena. Just, like, yeah. the, the sounds it made, the way it, its mouth moved, the, the hunch of its shoulders. Did I like it better... Then the Peter Jackson design, yes. (laughs) Yes, Yes. a thousand times yes, because I fucking hate that design so much. Do I like it as a design for the wargs? No. (laughs) Again, wargs, big wolves. How hard is that to fuck up? Why aren't big wolves scary enough for people? Why do you got to make a weird hyena jackal thing? Because they're cute. So, like, (laughs) they need to be orky. I mean, what I appreciated from the warg was that it was actually scary as all fuck because they should be things of sheer terror. You know, in in the Two Towers adaptation when they're fighting the wargs, they're... I mean, God, don't they just have Gimli standing there, like, axing them down one by one? <laughs> like, they're just so easy to kill. They're just not a threat by any stretch of the imagination. This... This was a threat. That part was well done. I mean, as a 150 kilos wolf should be. Yeah, basically. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I I know it's a little bit of a disconnect. I don't like how it looked, but I like how it behaved. 
that makes any sense. In addition, I like the cat the Worf. They only the Worf, yeah. They only had one. That was great. <laughs> Get the Worf. Because you know what? You only need one. <laughs> and the scene um, with the Marshal try to escape. Yeah, we get an uh, of course. Literally as soon as that guy <laughs> showed up, I was like, well he's dead. Yeah. You know, you have the older elf who's kind of taking him under the wing and trying to show him the way and three days from retirement like, of course this guy was gonna die. But Arondir at some point does call out to him Hano, uh, uh, which means brother. Yes, was when like a he kind of climbed a little to be able to see him run yeah, away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he, and then he appeared like a stand up, <laughs> and then he turned with like yeah. the, the arrow, and he just. Like, I do. Him. I do like how, in the distance on the tree ledge, you can see one fucking orc jumping up like, yeah, I got him. <laughs> Did you see that? Did you see that? That's pretty far. <laughs> I, I I would be jump as well. <laughs> Yeah, that was a nice little detail. But this fucking elf, again, these are the worst elves ever. They're <laughs> supposed to have amazing eyesight and speed and all this. He doesn't see the fucking orcs over there. He doesn't try to zigzag out of the way. Like I must say, we already seen the trailer catch arrow with the hands. Literally saw an elf catch an arrow with his bare hands. And, and this is his superior. Oh my God. The men that should be better than him. This is what I mean. Like... You can't build up Arondir as a one-man fucking army and have all the elves the worst fucking fighters ever. It doesn't make any sense. If Arondir is going to have skills like that, they should all have skills like that. Yeah. Like, otherwise, it should have been a human character that went over the hill and yeah. got shot with an arrow. It just... And in that very scene, when, when they use, like, uh, the chains as whips, I am okay with the physics. You can basically do that with a rope. Yeah, I kind of like that, too, also, because they had no weapon. So what can they use? They can use the chain. My problem is the weight of that chain. <laughs> L- like, uh, technically, the elves, they are very skilled, but not particularly don't have supernatural strength. I think they are stronger than men, though. They're stronger than men? Yeah. I, I always thought they are equal. Uh, i got to go through the history of Middle-earth again, but for sure they're faster. Like, yes. way, way faster. I, I'm agile. I, I, so I, almost to the point where they could see things in slow motion, like an arrow <laughs> coming at them across a field. If they indeed have super strength, okay, then nothing. But otherwise, use the chain, like that chain as he did, that is a lot of kilos of metal there. You say that they would need super strength to lift those, and then when they're like hacking at the chains with the axes, it takes them so long to break those chains. You'd think with super strength, they could just like rip through them. (laughs) It's what you think. In the rest of the act, it seems like I have regular strength, but obviously the scene was very cool, so. Yeah. I I, 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 I will tolerate it. Yeah, generally (laughs) speaking, it was fine. But we go back to the halflings first. Yeah, they basically like grab into the air. To, to the ground and, and they say like a, and they say take it to Adar and they cut and then it, yeah okay yeah. and in the very very end this went like up here yeah so then we go to the the halflings I mean not much to talk about in that final scene other than I thought it was really sweet you know like the family unit yeah. forming together it, in, it was in, nice include the puppy yeah it's great because it's like a found family right here you have Poppy who's obviously an orphan and the stranger who. God only knows what that is, but it's not Gandalf. 
and then and, um, and, and even then, but like, even like Nori's family, is, exactly, you know, they they, they they redo it his life. Yeah, we have this is his second wife and his second child. So, yeah, it's just like a nice moment where this whole like this like new family unit is formed, and uh, yeah, I liked that. In general, I always thought that they say like, oh, each one need to carry his own like a cart, mm-hmm. and this is before all of the stranger moment. Mm-hmm. So it's like, okay, so if he have the broken, like, a foot, but by the way, he broke that foot constructing something from the town, so contributing to the community, another people from the community should help to carry that car. Yeah. It's not, oh, you bring your foot uh, constructing something for the town, mm, bad luck. I mean, they were a little angry at them, so I could see them maybe denying them help at that point. But before, they definitely should have offered. It was a li- weird little moment. Yeah. Well. Anyway, the very, very last scene is Adar, uh, you know, almost showing his face. Uh, I know the actor is Joseph Mall. That doesn't really answer many questions about whether or not he's an elf or a human. That then today I discovered that he's Benjamin Stark. <laughs> but he is Benjamin Stark. <laughs> we have another Stark, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of course, the actor who plays Elrond was Baby Ned Stark. Yes. <laughs> Overall, like I said, it's definitely been my favorite episode of the series so I'm far. I'm very curious to see who this Adar character is, because it's not Sauron. I mean, I enjoy it, so the second, mostly for the kind of Doom part. Yeah, that was fun. But, yes, I mean, that was a pretty good, uh, like, uh, episode. I mean, everything in Numenor, I, I like it, so... So, let me find a quote. Yeah. We found a quote, because we gotta go watch House of the Dragon! <laughs> <laughs> And the star of the house of Fëanor, they are wrought of Ithildin that mirrors only starlight and moonlight, and sleeps until it is touched by one who speaks words, now long forgotten in Middle-earth. It is long since I heard them, and I thought deeply before I could recall them to my mind. Bye! Bye! Do you know what he's talking about? No. (laughs) I gave some more, yeah? Oh. and we will be the last. From Morgan James Fiction comes the exciting new historical fantasy Orope, The White Snake, by Guinevere Lee. The whispers of the gods have seen the vision, the gods destroying the world in a flood because the old ways have been corrupted and forgotten. Three are chosen, Tersh, Kareth, and Shadi, to go out and warn the world. The gods must be appeased. In Orope, The White Snake, Tersh must leave her children and travel to Matawe, the kingdom in the mountains. She also must care for Kareth and keep him out of trouble. Kareth, told since birth that he is destined for greatness, has been expecting this moment. Certain that he is ready, he quickly discovers that his confidence and curiosity have a tendency to lead him into dangerous situations. Shadi finds himself traveling alone to find the people of the jungle, the Petsahalpa, The jungle seems like a paradise until he discovers the darker rituals practiced within. Samaki is a merchant who returns to Mahat to find his home destroyed, his father dead, and no one to buy his expensive cargo. With his first mate Tuhark, 
The merchant struggles to move forward after his entire world has been upended. The stories of these four travelers intersect and entwine with each other as they move towards their destinations. Guided by visions, the whispers must use their wits to survive in these strange new lands that would rather use them as political pawns than listen to their warnings. Available in paperback, digital, and audio wherever books are sold. To learn more, visit GuinevereLee.com. G-U-E-N-E-V-E-R-E-L-E-E.com. And thank you for listening. Music provided by Bensound.com. Pekari, the Azura Fish, is the thrilling sequel to Orope, the White Snake. Orope introduced historical fiction fans to a unique fantasy world inspired by Bronze Age history and mythology. Pekari takes them further, going to new kingdoms and introducing new characters. The gods are still angry, but the whispers of the gods are closer than ever to saving the world from a terrible flood. Kareth is still working for the powerful Imota. Kareth hopes Imota will help him deliver his message to the ruler of Mahat. But everything changes when the sorcerer Dedelian takes an interest in him. After the winter snows have melted, Tersh decides to head into the mountain kingdom of Matawe to reach the city of Mesite. Lost in this strange land, she must rely on the help of Tuthalia, a soldier with an unknown past who plans to return home and start a family. Shadi's journey seems doomed by the death of their leader, but the Hunter case set promises to lead them through the jungle. There are sinister things in the jungle, though, and their journey is beset by disease and attacks from wild animals. Samaki sails east, a last attempt to make a good trade that will save his livelihood. The Middle Sea has changed since Samaki last sailed, though, and the waters are rife with the ruthless sea people. Continue this wonderful journey through the fantasy world of Picari, the Azure Fish, the sequel to Orope the White Snake. Ebook, paperback, and audiobook out now. You can buy it on Amazon, Chapters Indigo, Barnes and Noble, and wherever books are sold. For more information, please go to the website guineverlee.com.